Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Steve Lambert. He's an artist, an associate professor of new media at State University in New York at Purchase College. That's a mouthful. And, uh, and also uh, a free-time uh, open-source developer. How's it going, Steve? Pretty good. The idea of doing that in my free time is hilarious. <laughs> How is that? I just, it, like, well, I think this happens with everyone that does open source stuff. It's like you do it for like a few weeks or a few days and then you don't do it, you know, like it's good enough to be out in the world. And, um, and then there is no like free time, right? It's like you, maybe you come back to it. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's kind of the story of my life. Yeah. So I guess maybe I am a free time. Yeah. I've just never heard it described that way. Well, and eventually I, I decided to just make that free time my profession. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would buy what I make. <laughs> well, let's cover that. because We have a lot of other stuff to get to, but the, your free time projects that people may remember uh, have included uh, self-control. Yeah. Tell, tell me real quick what that was or remind all of us. So it's a really, it's, it's basically like you set a timer and you set, make a list of websites that you don't want to be able to visit. And so you could say, I don't want to be able to visit Facebook and Twitter for, or get my email, incoming email for an hour. You set the timer, you hit start and the timer starts counting down. If you quit the application and reopen it, it, it kind of knows what time it is. And then if you restart your computer, it still knows what time it is. So, um, so it's basically, I call it parental controls for grownups. <laughs> Self-control, um, it makes sense. Yeah. And I designed it and, um, and then I hired this kid who was 16 at the time through some, you know, online software thing to build it. I didn't know he was 16, uh, but he did it for a hundred and hundred dollars, I think. And it has become one of the most popular things I've ever made. Nice. So do you, yeah. I mean, did you make this out of, uh, your own frustrations? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I would be like, I'm going to write this grant or I'm going to, you know, I need to work on this one thing. And then, and that's what I'm going to do for the next hour and like be committed to that. And then I would find in 10 minutes, I was checking my email and would kind of come to and be like, what happened? Oh, I was going to do that one thing or worse. Where was I? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to do this. And, um, so I figured there had to be a way I could turn it off, but the ways that existed were there's a, there's another program called freedom that blocks your network access. And it just didn't like, I still needed to be able to yeah, say use Wikipedia. Yeah. Or I needed to be able to send an email, but I didn't want to get anything back. And so I was so sure that something existed and I kept looking around and looking around. And, uh, then finally I was like, I'm just going to, you know, have somebody make this and see what happens. So I designed it and then, um, now, you know, like a few people have contributed to it on GitHub and I get emails like on a regular basis from doctoral students that say, <laughs> thank you for helping me get through my finals. And in the back of Zadie Smith's new novel, um, she thanks the software. So that's nice. This actually relates to one of my top picks, but, uh, I've, the iPad has become the way that I deal with that. If I want, especially with writing. Uh -huh. I, I just take my iPad into another room or out on the deck and I turn off all notifications and it, it has the similar effect. Yeah. I think it's, I've always thought of it as a way of developing a habit that has been, you know, you develop this other habit of continually checking stuff. Yeah. So, 
so it breaks that and you and you develop a new one and so it's sort of like training wheels like you i ended up using it for a little while and then i don't use it for a long time because i have the habit again um it's really you making the decision and you have to have the sort of initial impulse to decide i'm not gonna look at this stuff for 30 minutes or for you know 18 hours or whatever it is and then it just helps you follow through later on you don't need the help on the follow-through so this uh, conceptually seems to relate to one of your earlier projects, which you said was uh, a relaxation video game, like uh, where you compete to relax more. Yeah. So it was called Simmer Down Sprinter. It was the first programming project I did. And I had the idea for the game, which was a game where, where you would compete to relax. It would measure your stress level. And then you it's a running race. So the more relaxed you get, the faster you your player runs in the game. And uh, you want to out relax your opponent. And I started going around to people that I knew, knew more about programming than me. You know, like the last programming I had done was on an Apple IIe in basic. Sure. And it was like a questionnaire about my parents <laughs> <laughs> that they would take. So anyway, um, I went around, I was like, is this possible? And do you think I could do it in six months? And they would all kind of hesitate and say, it's possible, but, and then whatever came after, but I would start writing down, you know, like you need to do this and you would need to do this and you need to learn this, you know? And, um, and so anyway, within a, that was like my master's thesis was this, and it's a two seat arcade game. Like it looks like a car racing game. You sit in it, you put your hand on this pad and it measures your galvanic skin resistance, which is kind of like what they'd use. One of the sensors they'd use on a lie detector test. Um, so your skin literally tenses up when you, um, when you get stressed out and the, the sweat glands that get smaller and there's less, there's more resistance between like two points on your finger or two different sure. fingers. And so th- we just amplified that into a five volt signal and then measured it. And then in the game, it's, it's actually me as the runner. It's a video of me running on a track, one in this like ridiculous blue running outfit and another one, like super short shorts. And I like intentionally put on a lot of weight before I did it. And, uh, and then one in red. And so in the actual game, it's like me competing with myself. Um, but the, you know, and that's really what the game is. Like you, you have to stop caring about winning and then you'll win. See, that's, what's intriguing to me about the concept is relaxation and competition don't generally go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't seem possible to me. I'd have to try it. Well, you know, it's just another incentive. Like you want to be the champion. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting (laughs) psychological experiment right there. Yeah. Yeah. So then you also, uh, just to kind of breeze over some other stuff, you've done, uh, WordPress themes and, uh, uh, Firefox plugin that converts advertisements into artwork. Yeah, which all of a sudden there's like this renewed interest in because of iOS nine. <laughs> I did a I did a TV interview for the BBC last week, um, you know, because they wanted like a counterpoint um, about how how things would this wasn't going to be the end of the world, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I figured out. Uh, I guess this was around the same same time, like 2007 or so, that. Um, Adblock Plus was like one of the most popular, and it always has been one of the most popular extensions. And had this kind of flip in my mind of like, what if you could turn all those blank spaces to art? And I was a senior fellow at this place called iBeam, which is an art and technology center that's in Manhattan. 
And uh, so there were all these like smart people around. And our my title there was like an open open research fellow. So the idea is that we did um, R and D for the public domain. So things that companies wouldn't develop, but sort of needed to exist in the world. And that fell under that. And so, uh, so there were some other, there was, a some other people there that helped me build it. And then, uh, it's existed since, although it's sometimes it's been hard to keep up with Firefox's developments. And now we're trying to redo it, um, to make it work for Chrome and Safari. And if any of your listeners want to help, you can get in touch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> check close. the, check the close. show links for contact info. Yes. So I, I, I have many questions, but in your uh in your about page at visitsteve.com is it dot com yes yes all right so in your bio it talks about your your mother and your father and your mother being an ex-dominican nun and your father a former franciscan monk and i'm just curious for a little bit of backstory because that begs a few questions <laughs> So yeah, they, they both went into it like young. My dad was, I think 13 when he went to seminary. Oh, wow. A lot of pressure from an Irish grandmother (laughs) or my Irish grandmother, his mother. Um, and then, uh, like everyone on his side of the family, like all my aunts and uncles were priests and nuns, except for one, the youngest who was a rebel and became a Navy SEAL. Um, the, and then on my mom's side, um, yeah, she became, she has a master's in theology and became a nun. But anyway, the short version is that they, they both kind of got into it, um, ha- having an idea of what they wanted to do. Like they wanted to do a lot of good in the world. And this was the way that you could do good in the world. And this is like the late sixties, early seventies. So there's like all that sort of social upheaval happening. And they're realizing we can't do as much good in the church as we can outside of it. And so they left. Interesting. How does yeah. a, how does a family line continue? If everyone takes a vow of chastity, they break it, <laughs> <laughs> they quit, you know? Oh, I, I don't know what the family crest would read for that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, once they were done, they were done. And, uh, we, I didn't really go to church as a kid and I didn't learn a lot of that stuff. Like they would tell me if I asked, but, um, it was, it, it was, I went to church for like weddings and funerals and they were not into what was happening within the walls of a church, you know? So what you kind of just answered this next question, but, um, and if you're, if you don't want to say, just say, I don't want to say, uh, but are you a religious person? Uh, I can say I am not, I like, I, my dad would get so mad at that last Pope whose name I don't remember. <laughs> Cause I don't care about any of this stuff. But he was complaining. I was like, Dad, that's, you know, that's kind of what the church is, right? Like, they're, they're fucked up. And <laughs> he, he would, um, he, sorry, I did it. <laughs> um, and he had this idea of what it could be, you know, and it, which was more about like service to the poor, life of poverty, like, you know, life of service. Yeah. And he really did live that. So they, my parents had this furniture business. And they would hire recently, um, uh, ad- basically like Vietnam vets who were addicts straight out of the VA, um, that had no training in woodworking and they would teach them woodworking and they had this whole business 
custom furniture business, right? So my mom designed the furniture, my dad built it, and then it all the all the crew were cocaine addicted Vietnam War vets <laughs> and like recent immigrants who just got their papers that didn't speak English, and so that was like how they that was their everyday life, and it wasn't like a the business wasn't called like new beginnings or something. <laughs> it just was like, that's how they did it. And it was a matter of fact, you know? So would you say that, that I, I'm not religious either. I am, I'm very, very non-religious. Um, but I have, because of my religious upbringing, been instilled with a certain moral compass, moral sense sure, yeah. that I analyze and am willing to adjust course on frequently in a way that very religious people cannot. Yeah. Would yeah. you say that that upbringing instilled that kind of sensibility in you? Yeah, totally. And to be fair, like coincidentally, yesterday I was at a church in Georgia that was totally radical and like really accepting and affirming of all different kinds of people. And being there, like I was tearing up because it was the way that they talked about, um, I don't, that whole aspect of their lives was the way that my parents kind of talked about it and lived it. And so there are those kinds of churches. Um, but you know, to kind of the other side of it was, I remember when it being 16 or something and I was like, dad, how come we don't go to church? Like you, you and mom, like live this whole life. We never go to church. And he was like, do you want to go to church? And I was like, no, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm asking. You know? And he's like, cause we could go, we could like get all dressed up and we could, you know, get in the car and drive over there and park and sit in there and listen to them talk to us for two hours and then drive home. Or we could actually go out in the world and do good things. And I was like, ah, okay. I kind of love that. Although <laughs> yeah. I feel like at that point, once a church is, is of that mindset, it's more of a community than a religion. Yeah. And and it, it was a very different thing what I saw yesterday. And and like yesterday was the first time I'd been in a church in like a long time. Um, and I went basically for work, which is another long story we'll get into later. But um, but yeah, you know, there there is something to be said about a weekly sort of check in and affirming what you an intention to live. You know, I don't think you need to believe in any deities or or um, magical things that have happened in the world to have that, but um, that that provided that without the sort of the discrimination and and that happens in so many other places, other churches um, was was nice. Yeah, I like yeah. it. But we are going to talk about your work right now because I okay. feel like this sensibility leads into a lot of. Okay, so you're an artist. Yes. But a lot, if you go through your uh, your list of of work that you've published, it it is all kind of uh, correlated with this this sensibility. Uh, you do work that is it creates a conversation with the goal of improving the dialogue and the goal of improving people's lives. That's my perception. Yeah, would you say that's accurate? Well, there. I would add one thing because there's a lot of artists and I've, I complain about this publicly written about it, but they'll say, um, you know, Oh, I'm looking at this thing in the world and I just want to raise awareness about that. Or I want to start a conversation about, you know, these horrifying things that are happening or some sort of, you know, mindset. And that to me is like that nobody actually wants that. Right. If you say like, Oh, look at this horrible thing that's happening in Ferguson and, or this wealth inequality. I just want to raise awareness of that. 
It's like, is that really what you want to do? If, if that's all you did, would you be happy? And they're like, no, I, you know, I do, I do want other things. So it's like, well, why don't you stay, say that, you know? And, and the reason they don't is because it's kind of terrifying to declare that, like, I want to end racism in the United States. You know, it's, it makes you sound grandiose and it makes you sound a little out of touch. And, and, uh, it, it's also a little frightening to say that kind of thing out loud, but, you know, in, in all those projects, the, there is a aspect of like actually communicating with people. And I, I see art as a really great way to communicate with people in ways that an essay or, um, some other form of communication, like a video wouldn't be able to do. Um, but ultimately my goal is beyond just that conversation. It's like there behave some kind of behavior change for in the world or, um, that that's moving towards something much bigger that will improve lives for as many people as possible. All right. So how does your work then avoid this, this, uh, raising awareness stereotype that you talk about? Well, either out publicly or on my own, I figure out a sort of like what, what I want beyond that. And part of this came through when I, when I went to grad school, technically I went for art, but I went to a big state university so I could get out of that department. And I, I learned communications theory and, um, sociology and a lot of that stuff so that, um, I could actually be effective with the work. So I wasn't just making artwork that served as a decoration or talked about other artwork or was interesting to artists, but actually had some kind of impact and effect in the world. Cause that, like those were my skills, but that's not all I wanted to do was just, you know, um, kind of, you know, what they call art for art's sake, right? Like that to me, I don't like doing that. So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, to me, it's like a tool or a means to get to something else. And once you realize that it, it's actually a powerful way to communicate with people like music or poetry, you know, like you can, you can really reach people. It's like, well, then what do I want to say? And, and ultimately what do, what do I want to do in the world? Like, what am I working towards? So one of your first uh, public pieces was uh, called Capitalism Works for Me. That was one of the latest ones. Oh, but, was it? Um, yeah, yeah. That one is from the last few years. But Okay, so your list is in reverse order then. Exactly, yeah. Got it. Okay, well, but let's talk about this one. Sure. Uh, it's kind of what I would dub an installation piece, an interactive installation piece. Is that okay. fair? That you would sound uh, like you belonged in an art school. <laughs> I graduated from art school, so. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Where, where uh, did you go? Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Oh, okay. And I have what an inter did you study? Inter interactive multimedia, which is today a web design degree, but that oh. was not really a thing when I graduated in two thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you so, know, you know that you have that background. I do. Cool. Okay. I've worked with a lot of installation artists and interactive artists and uh, a lot of what's appeared at like the Walker Art Museum and oh. and around the country. So, well, that's yeah. like what was happening at iBeam when I was there is that mix of like technology and art. Yeah. And part of the reason they brought me. Um, but yeah, I mean, we probably know a lot of people in common. <laughs> it's quite likely. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, so I'm curious about this, this capitalism piece because it, it had, it's a large billboard esque piece with uh with counters for true and false answers to this 
capitalism works for me statement slash question. Yeah. And people could hit a button. Yes. And so so what was, what, what was the goal? What, what was it to accomplish? So before that I had made a lot of work that was like about advertising and advertising's effect on culture did a lot of research about that and it actually got so much so that two years ago I was invited to the UN to present on my research on advertising's effect on culture. Um, but really when you're talking about that, you're talking about capitalism and, but what I realized is if I brought up capitalism or made a work about capitalism, my fear was that people would just run away because if you, if you try, if you, like, imagine going up to someone on the street and saying, can I talk to you about capitalism? It's like, no, you know, <laughs> I compared it to, and it's kind of funny that we were just talking about this, but trying to approach people on the street and say, can I talk to you about Jesus? And they're like, <laughs> well, you know, what do you want? How long is this going to take? Are you going to make me sign something? Like, do you want my money? <laughs> you know? And so, so we're, we're naturally should be you know, the, the people historically that have talked about capitalism in public space are not people that you want to hang out and have a drink with. So that became kind of a, I mean, I saw how it was affecting things in the world. And, and what was funny is this piece, I'm, I finished it six months before Occupy Wall Street happened. So that was like part of sort of what was going on in the world at the time. And of course still is, but, um, but it was like, okay, how do I make, it became the design challenge. It's like, how do I make something that can talk about capitalism that people won't run from that would actually be, they'd be drawn towards. And so I used this like, you know, kind of glittering lights and a scoreboard and voting and you put all that together and people walk towards it. Sure. Bright lights. Yeah. And they flash in <laughs> mesmerizing patterns and you're staring at like people like that sign before they realize what it says. So what would you say the, the result was, what did you, uh, what did you get out of the, uh, the interaction with this project? Well, I have talked to several thousand people now about capitalism around the world and like in a lot of cities in the United States and a few cities in Europe. Like we were in Times Square for five straight days, and there you talk to people from all over the world. Um, the way that they vote is very split, right? Um, but the why they vote the way they do, there are these patterns that emerge. Um, but I guess one thing, so you'd get like someone that voted true as like a sort of aspiration, like their life, like a, literally a homeless guy said capitalism worked for him, <laughs> right? And <laughs> And you can just like, you kind of want to be like, no, no, it doesn't, you know, like, look, but they're saying that because they want it to be true. And so there's a lot of like this emotion and feeling wrapped up in, in it. And, um, and that's why, like one of the strengths of art, I think, is that it deals with the sort of non-rational. And so there are people that vote, um, false because it, even though they may be fine, you know, um, and, and what they call like working again, is like meant to be sort of loose because works for them sometimes like, well, I have a job and I'm not starving and I have a, a home and it's like, okay, well, if that's your standard, like, I guess it works, right? The fact that how much you have to work and the kind of home you have and how much of a struggle it is and the stress and all that, like, that's not part of it. Um, but they'll say, yeah, it works for me, but I realize 
Another thing they'll say is it doesn't work for other people. And I, I can't say it works for me unless it works for everyone. Well, and I think that's, I think the, the question is intriguing. The conversation is intriguing because a person's perception of capitalism itself varies widely. Like yes. I, I spent a lot of time studying Marxism and communism and socialism. And like my view of capitalism is very yeah. different from um, an American who was raised to believe that capitalism was everything around them and that it everything we did was dependent on this capitalist ideal. And everything we've fought for and worked towards, this is the, this is the result. So this is like the pinnacle of society. And confusing capitalism with democracy. Yes. And, and I, I think that the conversations that would sprout from people with different backgrounds would be the intriguing part of this, not the, the binary yes or no answer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all that stuff happening. And then there, what's nice is, you know, I'm not there to, and the piece isn't meant to tell anyone how to think. Um, and so they come with a sort of starting point and often like, unfortunately, Americans ideas of capitalism are, are very, can be very simple. Right. Yeah. It's like, and so they, we come with whatever starting point they have. And then I add some complexity, right? So people will come and say, it doesn't work for me. And I'll say, why not? Look at you. You're here in New York city. You know, like we're in this beautiful, uh, light filled, um, consumer space like how is it not working for you you have the time to be here you know and just kind of like press them which is what i do as a teacher you know and then they have to sort of articulate well what what why do they feel that way instead of just having a knee-jerk response and then often what happens is they'll soften right so you get like uh, unfortunately the stereotype holds true of these like older white guys with white hair that have had one job their whole life and retired. And they're like, well, if you work hard, you, you know, it works out. And that's what happened to me. And if everyone did that, it'd be okay. And unfortunately people are lazy. And, <laughs> right. And so I would just bring something like that up and say, you know, it's, that's great that it's worked for you. And clearly it has, and you should vote true. Um, not everyone does. And that's why we have so many false numbers here. And there was someone who was just here who said that they worked in times square and they work really hard, but they spend three quarters of their monthly rent, uh, monthly salary on rent. What should I tell that person? Like, should I tell them to work harder? And then they have <laughs> to kind of be like, oh, you know, and it's a real person. And we're, you know, it's not just like this abstract idea of does capitalism work in a textbook or, um, you know, does capitalism work versus socialism and communism in dictatorships. You know what I mean? Like, so people will often try to simplify the question because it is a really difficult question and try to make it easier for themselves through like, sort of like basically cognitive ease, right? They're looking for a way to not think about this. And they'll say, well, you know, the only other options have been terrible. So I think it works. And it's like, well, that's not the question. It's not, it's does capitalism work better than a socialist dictatorship? It's <laughs> does it work for you? And then they're like, oh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that when you give someone a yes or no answer, uh, like option on yeah. a question like that, anyone who wanted to answer it would also want to explain exactly 
So yeah, they these... all say like, "Where's the middle button?" I'm like, "There's no middle button." <laughs> you have would to you, pick. Would, yeah, where's the uh, where's the qualified answer? Yeah. Would you? Did you uh, collate these responses, these conversations at all, or, or was this for of, you? I have a ton of video of people explaining why they voted the way they voted. Um, but the numbers, like the numbers, every time I've added it up, it's it's there's not a big statistical difference between true and false, like. Oddly, uh, I wasn't expecting this, but false won by like several hundred votes in Times Square. Um, but overall, like in all the different states I've been in the United States, like it averages out to about half and half. But the way that they answer and the qualities of those answers, like it's not working for most people, you know? Um, yeah. All the, but they might say true because it's working in this sort of minimal way or, you know, so that, the, that comes across in those interviews. And that's why I don't just make it about the sign, but about that conversation and the experience too, like of, of being in this sort of grand spectacle and then talking through something that people don't really talk about. And the news doesn't really talk about, like they just talk about the business climate or, you know, how the markets are doing, but it's never really about how it affects individual people's lives yeah. so much. And so to have a space for that conversation, like no one else is going to make that space, you know? I, I, I have to admit from a, a personal standpoint, this is, this is rather brilliant as far as conversation starters and then actually having the conversations mm -hmm. psychologically to give people that, you know, bright, shiny just come answer a yes or no question, yes. but then uh, really start people thinking and and responding. I, I love it. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. It's I, I call it bait sometimes. You know, like the sign is bait, and then yeah, exactly. Once they, once they come up, people come up and they're like, "All right, you ready to do it?" And uh, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, yeah." And I was like, "So in your life, and just saying in your life, how does capitalism yeah. work?" And they're like, "Oh," and then they stop for a second. They sort of hesitate. And then that's like the moment where that surprise moment allows me to actually start think ha the thinking process, right? Because without that surprise moment, everything's sort of, you're having all the thoughts you've had before or really haven't it with any depth, you know what I mean? But like you're following these similar patterns about like, well, I live in the United States and capitalism is better than communism. So yes, it works. And when you can slow people down, then they start doing that thinking, you know? So you mentioned your, your kind of, uh, line of questioning. If someone answered yes, did you have a devil's advocate response if they answered no? Yeah, totally. Like, I, I think I said before, like if, if they say, um, it doesn't work for them, I'll, I'll, like, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy taking on the character of, of someone who loves capitalism. So they'll say it doesn't work for me. I'll be like, what are you kidding? Like, look at your outfit. Look at these shoes. Those shoes cost so much money, you know, and, and, uh, you look great and you're out here in New York city. You're out here in Iowa, you know, um, shopping on a Sunday. Like, of course it works for you. Don't you have a house, you know, and like, just sort of play that side. And yeah. one time I did that, it's happened a couple of times where I'm like, look at your amazing outfit. And this woman answered, she's like, I'm trying to get a job. I'm like going on interviews right now. <laughs> Which is a very valid, uh, valid response, I think. Yeah, yeah. Nice. All right. So one of your other pieces was the New York Times Special Edition. 
Uh, Tell me what that was. So right after Barack Obama was elected, a week later, we made a copy of the New York Times that announced the end of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, like years before they actually were announced to be over. And then 14 pages of other good news. So there was like a business section and a a, a local section. And what we did was sort of projected what could happen in a best case scenario in nine months in the future if people really fought for certain things and then presented it as if it were the news today. So you, you, and then we printed 80,000 of them and handed them out in the streets of New York and some other cities, um, as the New York times. So you would get the paper and it would announce all this amazing stuff. And the idea was to envision the future that we wanted, um, in, in the form of something you could hold in your hands. So, you okay? So this was another interactive installation piece. Uh, not really an installation, so much as a political piece, I guess. An onion in reverse. But you yeah. made it clear. You made it pretty clear in the in in what people were reading that that it was a joke. That it wasn't factual. Well, yeah, it was funny, but like it was like a sincere funny. Where I think the onion is a as a. Um, sarcastic, funny, a dry, sarcastic. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And there were these hints, like it was dated nine months in the future. It was free and the times is never free. Um, and it was much thinner, you know, it was just one section instead of five, but, um, that, that this was not, so my, my hope was that for 15 seconds, people could feel what it would feel like to have the wars over after so many years. Yeah. And to have this other, like a vision of another world and to experience it as if it was real and then not feel duped for thinking that to feel like they were let in on something special and that that was something that they could then take to work and share with their friends, which is mostly what happened. Um, yeah. So it was kind of, it was a, a viral art project. Is that a fair description? I don't know. I mean, it, it was, uh, it, there was a ton of people that worked on it for, it was like nine months of my life was putting that thing together. And, um, there were literally hundreds of people that worked on it. And I don't know th- this. It's funny. Like the Brooklyn museum is showing it, uh, in a few months and they keep at like that. It's hard to categorize. So they're like, well, what do we put on the label for the people that made it? And I'm like, well, if try to put all, you know, hundred or 400 names that we have, <laughs> you know? And so like, they don't have labels that fit 400 names. <laughs> and, sure. And so, um, I don't really think about what to classify it as. Like, I just let the people in the museums figure it out, but. And this did get, this got some press coverage. This was, uh, this was a relatively big deal, right? Yeah. I was on like CNN live or CNN headline news, um, live, which was terrifying. I'm like, usually don't get nervous talking, (laughs) but, um, knowing that I was on CNN live was just, especially after it it was the, within hours of us releasing the thing and I was exhausted, but yeah, the, the weird thing was, is how much we were on the news in other countries. And I didn't expect that, but when you, in hindsight, it totally made sense that we had sort of gotten one over on the biggest news organization in in the country and that like newspapers and magazines in Russia and Germany and stuff would be and Mexico, even like we were on the front page of some paper in Mexico. Nice. Um, as an aside, it looks like CNN gave you a very nice beard trim before your appearance. 
This beard uh, changes length through over time. I've had it since 2000. And uh, so, yeah, it just happened to be <laughs> more presentable at the time. I guess now I look more insane. But So you've taken this, uh, this uh, conversation starting artwork and you have taken the kind of creative aspect of that and started. I don't know if you started, but you work with the Center for Artistic Activism. Yeah, I founded it with a guy named Steve Duncombe, who's a sociologist at NYU. And it was he worked on that newspaper, too. He's one of those one of the people in the big list. And afterwards, uh, I just wanted to know how I could be sure that a work like that had an impact and how to measure it. And I found him and I was like, oh, this guy is a sociologist. And he also used to be like an organizer and an activist. He'll know. He'll have the answers. <laughs> and um, so I ran it. We, I was like, had crashed a party and he was there and, and I kind of cornered him. And um, and he was like, oh, you know, later told me like, oh, this guy's an artist and he makes this stuff. Like he'll know how to measure it and how it works. <laughs> and so we both kind of became friends, hoping the other one would have an answer to this question. And we realized neither of us knew. And so the center came out of that research of like, how do we know when a work like this actually has an effect and what that effect is. And we interviewed a bunch of different artists that work in this way. And after a while we had answers and, and we started doing workshops with starting with grassroots activists on how to use creativity and artistic thinking and like design processes in their work as activists. And, and that would be what's labeled the school for creative activism. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're sort of, uh, it's a little bit of a joke. Like we use these academic names, like the school for creative activism and the arts action Academy and the college of tactical culture and <laughs> things like that, you know, cause it's really just two of us and, and, uh, and one other person that works on all this. But, um, uh, yeah, so we've done it in a bunch of different countries around the world now uh, with over 500 activists, I think, 24 different, 25 different workshops, um, everywhere from St. Petersburg to Kenya to like multiple States in the United States. And the problem that we're basically trying to solve is that there's a lot of like tradition and, and I would say default decisions when it comes to activism. It's like, okay, well we want to stop this law from being passed or, or we want to get this one passed. So let's start a petition. And then if that doesn't work, we'll have a march. And then when that doesn't work, we'll get, you know, we'll get mad and you know, <laughs> we'll make some t-shirts. I don't know. Um, and that those be the, those are the ways. And, um, in fact, there are like an infinite number of ways to solve that problem. And when you can think of it in terms of like, not rationally, like, okay, we just have to present this paper that shows that this is wrong. Um, you know, that the truth will set everyone free. And that, you know, politics has nothing to do with the truth <laughs> and facts. And when you can realize that, and that actually has to do with like emotions and experiences, that that's where the arts come in and you can be a lot more effective. I feel like we came from very similar backgrounds, but you figured things out better than I did. Like I was, well, uh, I, I spent a lot of time marching and carrying signs and, and being an activist for various causes, but eventually just got jaded because people don't respond to seeing marches. If anything, they get angry at a cause. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's something about directly confronting someone with their views and trying to set them straight that just makes them dig in. And so, you know, one of the things we talk about in the, when we do the workshop is how cognitive science works, you know? Yeah. And so, and I'm sure you know about like these kinds of biases and, um, and the, the idea that if you try to challenge someone directly, that they basically just double down on their beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. And so instead you need to approach sort of sideways and figure out how you can align with them and then move, sort of move them, move the point on this, what would be a contentious issue. That's how that capitalism sign works. Like I'm, I really don't think capitalism is the best we can do in our culture. Like, I don't know what better would be. I just know there is a better and, um, but I'm not going to go around telling you know, shouting about how capitalism is terrible because um, it just won't be heard. Right. Well, as an aside, I would say that capitalism as a pure ideal is actually, I, I agree with a lot of the concepts, but we've created mm-hmm. something that uh, creates socioeconomic circumstances and barriers to uh, be- taking part in a capitalist system mm-hmm. to a point where it actually has begun to be detrimental to the dwindling middle class and especially the lower class. But, um, but ideal a form of anything is always ideal. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I feel like the, the Marxist ideal works on paper too. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> all of them work on paper. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it is it, it, eventually you get to the point where you're like, I don't know what the precise solution in reality will be, but let's yeah. talk about it. You know, let's, let's yeah, brainstorm yeah. this. Like if we just assume this is the best we can do, we'll never get to the next thing. And we clearly, we need to get to the the next thing. So has the school for creative activism, is there a, a, a host of accomplishments yet? Or are you, uh, do you feel like it's making a difference? Yeah. And it, it's, it, it is in the, I mean, it is in a weird way, very difficult to mes- measure. Um, we were, me and the other Steve, Steve Duncombe were getting a sandwich one time in New York city and um, one of the guys that had been in our workshop happened to come in and he was like, Hey, how's it going? And we kind of caught up with him for a little bit and figured out what was going on with him. And he was like, all right, I'm going to go see you later. And then comes, come, come, leaves the restaurant, comes back and he's like, Hey, I forgot to tell you, you know, that fast food worker strike that was going on. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, we used a bunch of the stuff that you taught us about in the fast food worker strike. And we're like, Oh, great. Cool. Thanks. You know, thanks for telling us. And I, I, what I realized was that he didn't think to tell us about it. Um, the same way that I don't think about, uh, when I do subtraction, I don't think about Miss Minsky in my uh, <laughs> second grade class and be like, Oh yeah, that's that subtraction that she taught me, you know? Yeah. And so that it, what we've done, which I'm proud of is that may, t- we teach things that in the end make sense and become theirs. It's not like, a. a our method that then they use it, it, they take it on and adapt it to whatever they're doing. Cause we're not really teaching like specific tactics, like, Oh, do a flash mob or do this thing with telephones. Not, you know? not a checklist in the course materials. Exactly. It's like a mindset that then you can use to come up with your own. And so it doesn't, it feels like you own it, you know? So there are things that have happened within the workshops. Like we'll, sometimes we'll do an action together, uh, as an example, um, but we're, we've, 
there are accomplishments in the workshops we've done and we are, I shouldn't talk about this, but we're creating a secret society of alumni um, <laughs> that will be able to kind of connect sort of like the Masons, you know, like you're, <laughs> you're in this club and you can contact each other and call on each other. Um, so we're doing that. And um, um, I think that's also going to help us. Yeah. Well, will it work for the Masons. Yeah. And it'll help us keep track of like what's happening too and, and help them in a longer term. Nice. Would you say your, uh, your experience as a, a professor or in teaching informed this or vice versa? It's definitely both ways. So, um, like I taught high school, uh, for a year, which was a huge learning experience. I've kind of taught all ages and I've taught college for a long time. So I have a lot of, um, teaching experience and that comes in very handy. But then like last, last spring I was in South Africa working with sex workers that are like advocating for their health and human rights. And then I'll come back and talk about the photos I took of the action that we did with them and show it to my photo class, but at the same time sort of explain other things that were going on at the same time and how the, what those photos are communicating and how photography can be used as a tool. So it, like, it just sort of feeds back and forth in a really great way. This is really fun. I, uh, these are a lot of my favorite topics, but we should probably <laughs> get to uh, the top three picks. Sure, sure. So uh, round robin, back and forth. Uh, what's your uh, what's your first pick? My first pick is Sync Thing. Do you know about this? I don't think so. So Sync Thing, um, when BitTorrent Sync um, started to have like their pro package, and also it came out that like maybe it wasn't totally secure, which I'm still not sure of. Um, but you know, it was pinging out to these other servers and stuff. I was like, well, what, what else is there? And I found sync thing and I had at the time, uh, so I run like this raspberry Pi um, constantly in my studios so that I use as a, as a server and for a bunch of other things. Like I just, I use it all the time. Um, but I had BitTorrent sync installed on that and I was like, well, I'm not going to change it now because it's just going to take too much time. So when I replaced it with a newer model, cause they have these new processors in the raspberry Pi now, which are great. <laughs> um, I was like, well, I'll try sync thing and it's great. It, and it's totally free and open source and it allows more configuration than BitTorrent sync did for me. And in a way that I like, you know, like it might not work for you, but it's worth checking out. And then, the, the other nice thing about it is that it's, you can install with homebrew. So I have it on my iMac and my laptop and that was like dead simple to set up. And then on the raspberry Pi, you know, it was like pseudo apt get whatever. And, uh, it wasn't that difficult either. So I really like it so far. I've been running it for a few weeks. Nice. I, uh, I, I'm a, a bit torrent sync user and I've, uh, I've been in close communication with them about potential security issues and they've had good answers. So I've kept, I've stuck with it, but this does sound interesting. Uh, sync actually recently published an article on, uh, how to run a, a NAS over, uh, with a raspberry Pi and BitTorrent sync. Um, so this, this does sound, I think that's how I got started with it. Yeah. If that article came out a few years ago. Yeah. If I remember, uh, originally they, they, they published an update with the, the new version of sync which didn't oh, okay. exist a few years ago, but, um, 
I'll throw that in the show notes, but this does sound like a really cool alternative. Yeah. And you know, I'm not saying that BitTorrent Sync is insecure. I'm not, uh, just that there are questions in that, in that vein. Well, and that they own the code and, you know, in spirit, I like the idea of free and open source software. I do my best. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. Um, well, my first pick then is going to be Solver, which I don't think has come up before. Have you ever used really? Solver? Yes. Um, like when I, I'm not great at, uh, well, see, I've learned that I am actually good at math, but I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think of myself as good as, at math because I didn't understand it the way it was taught in school. Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing more complex problems, Solver lets me write in plain English and mm-hmm. define the unknowns and define the knowns and then just kind of write out what I want to solve and get like for every sentence I write, it gives me in the right column, uh, you know, my, my result and I can reference previous results and continue a a linear path to solving a problem that I couldn't necessarily just sit down and write out an equation for. And, uh, Solver it's on Mac and iOS and there are there are new ones like Numi and whatnot that I haven't really explored because Solver just works for me. Hmm. Yeah, I I use it like it's the step between just the Mac calculator, <laughs> yeah, or actually doing an equation in um, Quicksilver. Yeah, and you still use Quicksilver? It, oh yeah, nice. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, it's my commitment to open source stuff, right? <laughs> like I never, I'm like, I'm not abandoning this All right. the whole time. I never stopped. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, it's the step between that and a spreadsheet. Yeah. Right. Like if it's too much for a spreadsheet, but I can't just do it, punch it into a calculator. I open up Solver. Yeah. That's, that's essentially how I feel. Yeah. Although I, yeah. I, I never get to the spreadsheet point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't. I never, I do that if I'm like writing a budget that I have to send someone else. Yeah, that makes sense. I usually look yeah. for a dedicated app for my, my end result because I just never, I don't know, never got into spreadsheets, never databases I can do, hmm. but spreadsheets I've always found annoying, uh, non-portable, great for my own purposes, but not for my, uh, my end goals. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm yeah. weird like that though. Wait, aren't we all? Yeah, I end up well, I end up just ra- us, maybe. I end up doing like complex markdown tables and then yeah. scripts to compile them when I could have just done it in Excel and been done with it. But I have totally been at that point where I'm like, <laughs> why did I not just start in a spreadsheet? Why do I have to be so principled? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I annoy myself extensively. But so what's your uh, your number 2? Is and I'm regretting it. Tomato firmware, um, which is so. There's DDWRT and OpenWRT, yeah. which are these open source uh, alternatives for your router firmware. And I found Tomato a few years back, and the guy that was developing it stopped, and so it got forked into a couple different um, versions. And one is if you search for Tomato by Shibby, S H I B B Y, it's some Polish guy that updates it, and. Um, so this is like the, the quick story. I had an old WRT 54 GL Linksys router, which is like the classic blue and gray. Yep. Like I still if, have one if, around. I have, 
I have several because <laughs> I would collect them when people would throw them away because I'm like, you can put other firmware <laughs> on this. It's so great, you know. And um, and so I had them like run running at my other studio, one in my house, and I had it so tweaked out um, and working so well that I, I I didn't get a new router until uh, a month ago. So, so I was running on a G. Yeah, I was going to say you you missed out on N and AC. Yeah, and so I put in. I got this new router. Cause I was trying to, it's like this whole silly story where I was like, Oh, I could run a VPN on the router and then I could <laughs> do this thing. And like that, it didn't have enough to handle it. So I'm like, well, why don't I just try it? And, and then I set up the new router and it was so much faster. <laughs> I was like, how was I this stupid for so many years? You know? Cause I, I just figured like it was just a way to sell new routers and that there was no way it could beat how I'd configure this thing. So anyway, now I have the best of both worlds. And I have a new router that has wireless N and it has, um, this firmware on it that allows me to sort of sculpt the traffic so that theoretically my Skype connection is great. You know, while if my partner goes and downloads something that she, uh, she wants, it won't affect it, you know? Yeah. And it gives you a lot more control and it makes the router like you can just not mess with it and it's probably going to be better. Um, but if you want to mess with it and what, like do things like turn off your mail servers in the morning, right? So you can't get your email. Um, it's really handy and you just go in there and change a little setting. Intriguing. I, uh, I got a demo unit of the Linksys WRT 1900 AC, which is their like monster router. Uh -huh. And it comes with uh, web-based firmware that you can do similar things, but it was frustrating because it was not. Uh, as customizable as I would have liked. If you're going to take me that far, you know, give me full power. And yeah, and this sounds yeah. like it does open up those possibilities. And they do have totally. N and AC downloads. So, yeah, and it's because it's all in Polish. It can be a little intimidating. Like there's English translations, and I I started writing a little tutorial for that I haven't put online yet of how I got my router set up because like. There's a lot of assumed knowledge um, with this firmware stuff, but if you just like, I'm sure you'll be fine, Brett. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's worth it if you're like looking at it and being like, "This is too complicated." Um, you know, it, it, and there's always this fear of like, "I'm going to break my router." You're not going to break your router, you know. It's just like follow the instructions, you'll be okay. Yeah, well, and you can always restore to factory defaults, right? Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the 1900 AC that I mentioned is open source ready, according to the product description. And it says, while Linksys fully embraces the open source community and is providing open source use capabilities, they do not offer technical support on using open source firmware. But, I mean, yeah. you wouldn't expect that. So no. I haven't experimented with that, but it sounds like a lot of what you could do with the old, the, was it DD... Are DDWRT yeah. and yeah, you could probably pull off on this one. Definitely. And what's great. I mean, that's like one of those open source success stories where Linksys released the firmware because of a lawsuit. Cause people discovered the Linux kernel in the firmware and they're like, Hey, <laughs> GPL. <you> gotta, yeah. <laughs> and, and now they market the routers as being, you know, that you can put this other firmware on it. Nice. So yeah. what router are you running on now? It's a or what are Asus Asus? I don't know how you say Asus, it. Yeah. Um, hang on, let me check. 
I'm checking in envy all. I got an N66U, and it it only there's an like AC66 or something like that. It that does AC. Yeah. And um, I don't, I didn't get that because I don't have any AC devices right now, and I want to buy a new router later. Sure. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, it's been great. Awesome. It's been, a, it's been great. All right. Well, let's see. My second pick is iThoughts HD, which I'm pretty sure I've mentioned on the podcast as a top pick before, but it's a mind mapping app for iPad. And I've found recently that the external keyboard shortcuts, if you hook a Bluetooth keyboard up to your iPad, you can use iThoughts HD almost entirely from the keyboard with just the, the occasional tap on the screen which has improved my, I mean, that was why I always preferred to mind map on my Mac was because tab and enter and arrow keys were all I needed. And there wasn't a lot of mousing around or dragging out new nodes and things. Um, Are you saying mind mup MUP? Mind map. Is that map? I haven't, is that a thing? Mind mup? Yeah. What's that? It's like a web based mind mapping thing that you can mostly, I think you can do it all on the keyboard. Nice. And somehow they let you save it to Dropbox. And Nice. MindMeister is my web-based uh, app of mm. choice, and it, it is also very keyboard compatible. Okay. And you can export in just about any portable format, except for OPML, which I've been begging them for for years, but it'll eventually happen. I, I love that we're having this conversation because there is literally no one in my life that I can that could keep up with what we're talking about. <laughs> We've probably lost half the audience at this point, but I mean, I think in mind maps, I don't think in outlines and lists and, uh, you know, like concept maps and mind maps, just, they make sense to me. Yeah. I, all of my writing starts anything longer, anything that's going to have headlines, anything long Mm -hmm. enough to deserve to be broken up starts in a mind map. Hmm. And, uh, I, I couldn't live without my mind map tools and I thoughts X on the Mac and I thoughts HD on my iPad have become my favorites. What, what do you use other than my, I, I, if I'm doing it online, I'm doing it probably cause I want to share it with someone that I want to contribute to it and I'll use mind map, but I keep a, a notebook and a lot of it just happens in pencil. Nice. I appreciate uh, that. On a, yeah. Um, I would say, uh, as an aside that MindMeister has amazing live collaboration capabilities as well. Ooh. And you can embed okay. them in, in blog posts and things and people can contribute or not. Oh. If you set the settings to, uh, you just kicked open a door. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. I love it. And Meister task is their new thing where you can turn a mind map into like a Trello board with a click fun. Hmm. Yeah, so I'll stop. I'll stop shilling for my favorite uh, favorite mind mapping app. But anyway, so I did two free and open source things, and my next one is like high dollar. Okay, <laughs> um, I got access to a Wacom Cintiq tablet. Yes, and this is like the the ones that it has a screen in it. So that you can see what you're drawing, you can like draw, see what you're drawing over. I've always right? wanted one of those. Well, I first saw one in a, some store when they first came out and they were like two or three grand. Yep. And 
about 20 something, 25 inches, uh, 25 inch display. And it was clearly like for professional illustrators, yes. um, which I am a semi professional illustrator. Um, but that was way beyond what I could do. And I, I, I just wrote a book with Steve Duncombe um, about this creative activism stuff. And I'm doing all the illustrations in it. And I went back to my old method of, you know, like pulling, uh, oh, this is a little secret for your listeners. It's real artist trace, right? So I like get source images and then kind of draw over them to get those, the forms and then work from there, which in the past involved a lot of notebooks, a lot of like light boxes, scanning into, um, illustrator, converting it to vectors, coloring from there and kind of tedious. Yes. And so as I started to do that again, my curious and lazy instincts kick in and I'm like, there's gotta be an easier way to do this. You know, like it's been years, there's someone's got to come up with something. So Wacom now has a, um, a 13 inch version. That's like, I don't have an iPad, um, but um, it's like iPad ish size yeah. and it's about a grand and through, uh, my luck, I did not have to pay for it. It came out of some research funds that we had and it's so great. It's so great. Like I can draw this, the illustrations I was making before so much more quickly and also through layers and stuff, um, try things that I would be like, I wouldn't want to mess up a, a drawing I was doing by hand. And so it allows you to do a sort of experiment with abandon and all the, all the great things about working digitally, but you're not, it doesn't feel as abstract. And then they have different, um, nibs for the pen. So you can have a, a literally felt tip nib that works on that screen that feels more like a marker. And I sit with this thing and I just, it's like, I just get lost, you know, like I'm making a drawing and it's, it's great. Nice. I, I, yeah. I would say that, uh, if you have an iPad for six bucks, you can get an app called layers. Uh -huh. That is like, you can load an image into it, do tracing and then add layers as you color and everything. Uh -huh. It's very nice. But I have always been fascinated with the, the Cintiqs and yeah, I'm curious with as like, there's the surface tablet and the iPad and the Apple pencil. Yes. Um, <laughs> like what's going to happen with those, with, what, how will Wacom like stay ahead? Yeah, it, it will be interesting. I mean, because at the time the the twenty five inch one came out, my display mm -hmm. was a twenty three inch, I think. Yeah. So it was bigger than what I was that working was with on screen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I figured I could yeah. replace my primary display with that, and then uh, it turned out to be uh, not feasible to do that. So it would have been a, an additional expense that wasn't worth it because I too consider myself a. Uh, an almost professional photo artist slash illustrator who cannot oh. individually justify the expense like that. Um, yeah. I, I'm very good there at it. I just some, don't make enough money to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some off-brand ones that looked promising. Like Wacom is like the professional grade right. or whatever, you know, but there are some others that, as I was looking around that get down to like three or 400 bucks. Yeah. Well, the, um, the Wacom came out with the bamboo at a relatively low price, which was a pressure sensitive uh, the, uh, mm -hmm. pad that you could use with both finger and stylus. Mm. Okay. Uh, so you could use it as like a trackpad. Um, and I actually picked one of those up and it was, it was okay. Uh, but there were a ton of knockoffs of that that you could pick up for like 50 bucks. 
Um, yeah. so I, yeah, I imagine the Cintiq ones are probably not bad. Well, and I wonder too, as more, there's more tablets, there might be more of these that show up used. Yeah, sure. Cause it's like, it will still say, serve the same purpose five years from now. There'll probably be some, I don't know how you would make it that much better. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you, so you would use it for drawing. Do you use it for other stuff? I, I'm just yeah, I do. I do most, most of what I do these days is uh photo manipulation. Yeah. Uh, and photo like correction. Retouching? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I am, I have a lot of experience in illustrator and have been porting that lately to sketch, which is not as, um, powerful, but I, I don't know. I really, I like sketch, but, um, but yeah, if I had something like that, I would definitely, uh, make use of vector tools in that as well. Um, yeah. I'm actually working on, I've said this for a year now, but we are actually working on a children's book that is involving a lot of original painting and then vector work on top of it, an animated children's book of sorts. Cool. Um, and you're going to put out that new NV alt soon. I heard, uh, the, there will be an update to the current, uh, incarnation of NV alt. Does the live syncing to marked. Is that true? Yeah, actually the, the one that I'm running locally does. What day are you going to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have said tomorrow for about four months now, (laughs) it will happen. What what I want to do it, to be honest, is put that update out and have the, the auto update release screen, notify people of the existence of the new incarnation that we're working on right now. You could still do that. Yes, I could. Like you could be like, Hey, here's this little tiny fix. And by the way, <laughs> that is, I do want to make, there are so many NBL users that I feel like we have just a built in marketing platform for the new app. Yeah. It's a, uh, a potentially uh, very, very inexpensive way to get the word out to hundreds of thousands. Be fun. I, I am trying to playfully put pressure on you, but yes, David great. Wayne did it the same thing. Great. I heard that one. And that's <laughs> why. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it's working. It works great. And it, uh, it gets the job done so well. I so. feel bad because I forget how, how, how minutely crippled everyone else is right now, because I'm running the version that has all the fixes off straight Don't off the tell GitHub me repo. About this. Well, you, you probably have, you have Xcode, right? Yes. Pull the pull the GitHub repo and build it. It's everything's up to date there. Ooh. Okay. You can have. You I can won't. Have no it. pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say the code base, the notational velocity code base is old enough now that building it on any anything after Lion takes a little bit of patience, a little bit of tweaking. No. But you'll I'm, figure it out. I haven't gone to Yosemite yet, but I'm on whatever was before that. Mountain Lion. Yeah. You, you, I, you are, you're time? a stubborn person. No, I'm not trying to be stubborn. <laughs> I just, um, and usually like I would look at those people with disdain, uh, you know, like, Oh, what are those bars across your uh, finder window? Is that, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just, it didn't it. I don't know. There was some reason I was like, there's always, you know, something people complain about during initial release, but at this yeah. point, like I've been running, uh, uh, El Capitan beta for a while now. Yeah. I, I, uh, lion and mountain lion seems so antiquated to me at this point. Uh, I'm, you're making me feel small. I, I feel like you, you are, a, you, you are the wise person who does not jump on things 
until you are certain that it won't break your workflow. But my workflow is so constantly in flux that I'm willing to risk everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, my last pick is uh, I, I constantly get questions about what uh, pinboard clients I use because mm. I'm, a, I'm a huge – from day one, I, I dumped uh, Delicious and switched to pinboard, and I use pinboard in lieu of any local bookmarking. Any, Can you brag about how much you paid? I paid – I think it was three-something. Nice. Okay. Um, which because the price goes right up as for more for people, people who don't know Pinboard. Every user who signs up, the price goes up a little. So the sooner you get in, the cheaper you get it. I paid ten. Yeah, ten it's bucks. it's. I think it's like twelve plus now. Yeah, I'm late. Yeah, but it it was a good business model. It, oh, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. it succeeded for him. Um, but I'm sorry, interrupt. <laughs> it's you, quite please. all right. I uh, my my client of choice on the Mac right now is called Spillo. S-P-I-L-L-O. And it has proven to be a very... The only thing I miss... I used to use Deli Bar. And Deli Bar had a great menu bar only mode that could you could always have on and always be ready to use a bookmarklet from any browser and add your pinboard bookmark. Spillo requires that you run it in the dock in order to be able to access that functionality. But it has built-in browser. You can hit Command-Shift-E on any bookmark, edit tags, things like that. You can sort by tags, sort by dates, filter. It's it, it's very complete. It does everything that you think a pinboard client should do. Not much beyond. The one feature that I've always wanted was an easy way to like merge tags and delete old ones. Yeah. But the problem ends up being actually the pinboard API. Uh, where deleting tags via API doesn't actually seem to delete them. So I have, like, there was a point where I I made an effort to consolidate all my pluralized tag names into singular tags, and I automated the whole process. And it was beautiful, except for it didn't actually delete the plural versions. So my autocomplete frequently offers me tags I don't want to use. But that's not the fault of any individual client. So these things allow you to see what you've pinned before they don't allow you to create a pin oh yeah they do oh yeah okay yeah absolutely i have i have bookmarklets in fact on my site i have modified bookmarklets from their default ones that uh that solve a couple issues i had um so if you search spillow on brettterpster.com you'll find those but uh yeah it's got a very simple api scheme that or a url scheme that you can access from any kind of javascript application and uh, create bookmarks. Oh, what, the other thing I love about it is if a bookmark already exists, it will pop up the prior information and not all the clients have, have worked that in yet. Ah. So anyway, I got to check this out. Do I use what? Do you use bartender in, <laughs> yes. in the menu bar? Yes. Okay. Daily. Yeah. There's not something better than that. No. In fact, okay, I don't think right. there's anything else in its class at all. Okay. Bartender two. Is that out yet? I don't think I could talk I about it yet. No, it did. It released this week. It did. Oh. It's out and full El Capitan uh, compatibility, and it is, it's wonderful. Okay. Can I ask you one other thing? You may. Okay. Because, like, you know, this is, a, this is like a golden opportunity to have you <laughs> to be able to ask you a question. Okay. Um, keynote. Yeah. It used to be great. And they started taking features out. Yeah. The thing that annoyed me the most was I couldn't customize the presenter view. 
and I collaborate with other people that refuse to use Keynote, and I, I've lost that fight. They use PowerPoint, yep. and so um, that's a separate thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes it, uh, what I want to find is a slideshow software that is customizable and has a lot of control, but that is not dependent on, you know, like that is sort of like oh, a web slideshow thing. So I found Show Off, which is uh, a project that I haven't used it for a slideshow, but I've actually contributed some bugs and like um, tried to fix some CSS stuff in this web slideshow. So basically you open up, you create a, like a running server, uh, a Sinatra server on your, yeah. I'm just realizing what, uh, how nerdy this is, but you're, you're on the line with me. That, so, yeah. um, so anyway, you run a Sinatra server and then you open up in another browser window, your, your presentation, and then you have a presentation view in, in, in a second browser window, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems it works pretty well, but I'm wondering if you know of anything better. All right. So my, my, uh, exploration in this area has been heavily into HTML five based slideshows. Yeah. And I, I, I don't like, as far as something that's easily accessible to collaboration, none of those are, unless the people you're collaborating with are, you know, HTML coders or love markdown, et cetera. Yeah. Um, well, show off depends on Markdown too, but it's 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 a pretty simple like layout of text, and you know, like it's not that hard to figure out. Yeah, uh, but uh, the Reveal JS, and there there are newer ones that actually have more features. But Reveal JS has an online editor at uh, Slides dot com, hmm. and it is it's quite good, and it offers like you can add presenter notes that run in a little node server. Mm-hmm. And and sync up so you can have a, a two display setup or or a projector and a, a monitor mm-hmm. and run your notes and see the next slide and everything just like you would in PowerPoint or Keynote. And that has been uh, the one that I recommend to people. I actually I have uh, uh, scripts that convert Markdown into reveal.js presentations. I can send you mm-hmm. a copy if you're interested. But mm-hmm. the other option for Mac is an app called Dexset okay. that is entirely Markdown-based, and you write in very... It has a couple of extensions, and uh, you can use uh, special tags based on Markdown syntax to add things like full-screen background pictures or uh, run filters on images and things like that. Whoa. And that is... It's very nice. Uh, you cannot customize the... Uh, themes. There is a set uh, oh, set selection of, of themes, and I wish I yeah. could just add my own CSS. Yeah. Other than that, though, it is it's spectacular, and it I'll it's its it own again. it's its self contained presentation system. Hmm. So you run okay. it; it can run full screen and pop up your presenter notes and things. So I'll check it out. Cool. So I guess those count as extra top picks, but no, we're <laughs> just conversation. Right on. Um, yeah. So I, I can't offer, a a uh, a PowerPoint equivalent, but I can offer uh down and dirty HTML five and markdown it seems solution. Like a sort of like professional, uh, and I don't know what I mean by professional, but professional level, like slideshow thing that al- would allow you the most amount of control over the presenter view over themes 
You know, like, well, I, don't, I just don't understand why that doesn't exist. I, I feel the same about teleprompters. Oh. Like I, I like to have a teleprompter when I'm doing screencasts because it prevents a lot of stuttering and stopping and restarting. Yeah. But your average, there's one for 10 bucks, but most of them cost $90 plus just to scroll huh. text on the screen. So I built, um, I built a prompt down, which is an online app that you can just paste markdown into and then hit a button, but it's not, you can't control speed on it or anything yet. And I haven't gotten back to it, but, mm. uh, but I do feel like there's a huge space for even a web app, but possibly an iOS app that just turns your iPad into a teleprompter for, you know, for three bucks. Yeah. And the, have you seen those designs where they'll take like a two-way mirror and yeah. put an angle in front of the camera? And, yeah. And, and most of the expensive, uh, most of the expensive teleprompters for Mac do, they have mirror modes. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you kind of replicate that very easily. But yeah, I mean, in these days, that's just a three CSS three transform to make that happen. So it really shouldn't be an expensive thing. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, we're just giving away business ideas here. <laughs> so, uh, it's, people can find you at visitsteve.com. Yes. And they can find you on Twitter as Steve Lambert at Steve Lambert. Yes. Uh, is there anywhere else? I will link all of the projects we've talked about and everything. We'll get direct links. Is there anywhere else you want to mention? Uh, I'm really proud of my Instagram lately. Okay. <laughs> it's um, visit Steve. All right. Um, yeah. That will be included. I have, I just, I feel like I need to get into Instagram because the networking possibilities are oddly vast there, but I, I haven't. I just started, I was like, oh, I could put up old projects on here and like people are eating it up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. know people get never seen followers, like the viral potential on Instagram. I had no idea it was so high. I feel like, yeah, but all that stuff, it's just like you're chasing after something and it's never satisfying. So I try, I, I actually delete a lot of stuff from my phone for long periods. And then when I need it, I'll put it back on. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Well, thank you for, uh, for taking the time. You, you turned out to be even more interesting than I thought. Oh, well, you, I, I, it's been great to talk to you. And I, again, thank you so much for like the work that you've done and put out to help so many people. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. And that was episode 151 with Steve Lambert. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you in a week. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by PDF Pen 7 from Smile. PDF Pen is the ultimate all-purpose PDF editor, and Smile offers 10 amazing tutorials from the talented David Sparks. You know him as Max Sparky. In just two to four minutes apiece, you can learn how to use PDF Pen to annotate PDFs, add signatures to PDFs, fill in PDF forms, touch up images in PDFs, perform OCR to convert scanned documents into usable text, and much, much more. As always, you can support the show by going to smilesoftware.com systematic. Thanks again to Smile for supporting Systematic.